Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we preview the 20th anniversary of DC's Environmental Film Fest, get ready for London 2012 with a wonderful athlete, and take summers off. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we invite you to spend the next hour with us as we share legacies of positive footprints. This month, Washington will become the center of the environmental film world as it prepares for the 20th anniversary of the Environmental Film Festival. We'll preview it with the festival's executive director, Peter O'Brien. So we have about 20 films within the festival this year uh, that look at that crucial connection uh, between health and the environment. Becoming a world-class athlete takes enormous determination, courage, and faith. Paralympian Anjali Forber-Pratt relies on all of those as she sets her sight on the 2012 Games in London and will share her remarkable and inspiring story. But I didn't quite fit in in, in India either because I was raised, you know, Western and raised with very American values. And even though I look Indian, I'm in a very Western and modern wheelchair, you know, something that you wouldn't see in India. And so it was just a, a very, um, you know, a disorienting dilemma. Ever wanted to take summers off? Educator and author Larry Jungle Shirtel shares the joys and adventure when he takes summers off. In Fiji, I was uh, sleeping in a little bungalow and uh, I got bit by something. <laughs> and I didn't know what it was and I, I couldn't see what it was because there's no electricity. And uh, so I stayed up all night long wondering what bit me. Am I going to die? This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. In March, Washington, D.C. will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Environmental Film Festival. This film festival has become one of the world's largest and most influential showcases of environmental films. The festival presents a diverse selection of high-quality environmental films, including many national and world premieres. Peter O'Brien is the executive director of the D.C. Environmental Film Festival, and he joins us today to share what this year's festival holds. Peter, first of all, congratulations on 20 years. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand this year's festival, you're, uh, you're actually having a special feature, a special focus on the environment and health. Tell us about the special focus and, and, um, and, and how this came about. Well, we, um, uh, every year we show about uh, 150 or so films. This year we're showing um, uh, over 160. And uh, for the last few years we've been bringing out a special theme uh, in, uh, in the festival, sort of uh, theme within it. And in the past we've looked at oceans and Another year we looked at agriculture, and uh, this year we're looking at, at the connection between health and the environment, uh, which is obviously uh, a theme that, that comes up uh, over and over in, in all sorts of different environmental stories. Uh, so we have about 20 films within the festival this year uh, that look at that crucial connection uh, between health and the environment in, in uh, subjects like uh, food and uh, chemical pollution and air and water quality and, 
and all sorts of things like that. And how has the festival changed over the 20 years? Have you uh, followed kind of the media's lead, for example, with this year, the environmental, uh, the correlation between the environment and health uh, has been also, you know, a, a um, at the forefront of a lot of media reports. Is that how you guys have determined the festival's uh, focus in, in past, and how has it actually changed over the last 20 years? Well, I, I can certainly say that uh, over the uh, last six or seven years uh, that I've been uh, with the festival, uh, the number of films on these subjects has noticeably uh, increased, and, and the interest in them has increased, and it, and it seems to uh, be continuing to increase every year. Uh, we're having uh, uh, more, you know, larger audiences, and, and we're finding more films on these uh, subjects. And I think you're right that the media is, is covering uh, the issues more as well. And I think all of it kind of feeds feeds into uh, into this larger uh, focus. And pe- the public is obviously interested. Um, and we uh, determine our themes each year, uh, uh, you know, based on on what we think would be particularly uh, interesting to focus on in, in any given year. But but in addition to um, looking at health this year, we haven't. You know, many other themes that naturally come out in the festival. We have a lot of films on uh, energy issues. Uh, we have a lot of films on uh, food and agriculture. Uh, we always have uh, many films on conservation and, and wildlife. Um, and we're showing a, a whole selection of the winners from the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. Um, so we really have a broad, broad array of subjects that, that uh, uh, are of interest to, to many people. And how are the films selected? They're selected throughout the year, um, and it's really uh, uh, you know a long process. As, as soon as the festival is over at the end of March, we're, we're going to start to get people contacting us about uh, their films for the following year, and we follow films that that we know are in production. Um, we do a lot of research uh, uh, throughout the year. We, we don't have a formal submissions process, uh, but we, we receive many unsolicited uh, submissions throughout the year, and, and many of those end up being uh, great additions to the festival. Um, we go to other festivals uh, uh, nationally and, and uh, internationally and uh, to scout films. Um, so it's really a, a long process of, of trying to see what's out there and, and uh, what really are the best films on these subjects that are, that are being made throughout the world. Mm-hmm. You know, Washington, D.C. is uh, considered the documentary film capital in the nation, if not the world. And an association I belong to here uh, is composed of a ton of filmmakers, including documentary filmmakers. What would you say to the budding filmmakers who are likely listening with regards to the submission process? What things should they consider uh, in terms of you know providing perhaps a uh, a film for next year's film festival or the the following year, what what are the types of things that you guys look for, and what advice would you give that budding filmmaker who wants to get their film on the market? Well, uh, first of all, obviously I'm coming from the environmental uh, uh, side of it, so I would encourage all of them to uh, look at environmental issues and to um, uh, to focus on 
um, issues that have an environmental angle to them. Uh, there, there are just so many uh, stories uh, to be told out there and, and um, such great uh, subject matter uh, within that. Um, and uh, we look at a very broad selection. Our, our films, as I said, uh, cover a diverse array of, of subject matter. Uh, so if people uh, who are making a film um, or new, new filmmakers, we love to work with uh, first-time filmmakers. Uh, if people have a film that they think uh, uh, has an, an environmental uh, content to it or has an interesting uh, story, and uh, they should absolutely contact us. Uh, the best time to do it is, is probably in the, the summer and, and fall, uh, but uh, they can uh, contact us anytime during the year. Uh, if we think the film sounds uh, like it's going to be something that, that could work for us, we'll ask them uh, to send us a screener. Um, and, and we do a lot of this uh, throughout the year and, and really uh, are on the lookout for local filmmakers as well. One of the unique things about having such a film festival in Washington is that you are right at the seat of power with policymakers, decision makers. How have you seen the interplay between the film community, the documentary film community, and let's say the political community actually work to collaborate, to come together and perhaps make some significant changes in policy? Well, I think that uh, these kinds of films definitely have uh, an influence on uh, the debate and ultimately an influence on policy. Um, it's, it's sometimes hard to track, and we don't, we don't track it, but it, um, it would be a great subject for, for study um, uh, to see how, how that actually uh, works. But, um, you know, films now being made uh, that are so topical and, and on subjects um, uh, that are really right in the news. And, uh, an example is uh, uh, a film called uh, Pipe Dreams, which we're going to be screening the festival, which is about the, the Keystone uh, Pipeline project. Um, and uh, that film was, was screened earlier this year when that when the project was, you know, there were all the protests going on about it, and the decision was uh, was being made. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't say definitely that, the, that a film like that absolutely influences what happens with the policy, but, but it's, it's all part of that, um, uh, the effort to, to help people understand the issue. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you know, that policymakers uh, uh, take notice of that. With respect to the festival itself, when does it kick off and how long will it run? It, the festival it starts on March 13th, and it runs to the 25th of March, so it's thir 13 days. Um, I should also mention that there's, a, there's going to be a launch party uh, on March 8th uh, downtown at the, the atrium of the Warner office building. Um, so everyone should, uh, who wants to come to that is, is uh, definitely invited. Um, and then the film screenings will begin on, on Tuesday, March 13th. Now, um, one of the things I noticed in going through your website is that you often feature animated films. Are these films targeted towards younger audiences? Are you trying to, uh, one of the missions of the festival to try to grow uh, environmentalists uh, from, a, from an early age? 
Well, we, we definitely uh, try to reach uh, a lot of young people during the festival, uh, and we work with uh, with a number of uh, schools, uh, including uh, many public and charter schools uh, in the city. Um, and uh, we have we do have animated films. We try to have uh, as many as we can, and um, and many of those, most of those, are uh, uh, geared towards. Uh, uh, towards kids, um, and that's a great way to bring, you know, to bring families and, and uh, students into the uh, into the mix here, and to let them participate and um, and see some really great great films. The planning process for next year's festival will actually start uh, right after this year's festival. And what are some of the things that our listeners can do to help you during the year? Do you accept volunteers, uh, local and um, you know, from abroad or from other states? And, and how, uh, how would they contact you guys to, to help out with the planning for next year's festival if that's a need? Well, um, I, I should mention that we actually have a great need for uh, volunteers during the festival, and we're just about to um, uh, to start organizing our, our uh, core of, of volunteers for March. So if people uh, who are listening are interested in, in doing that and are able to commit uh, enough time to do it, we ask that the people uh, who want to volunteer commit to at least uh, five volunteering at least five film screenings. And it usually means you, you see the film, but it, it doesn't always mean that if there's if there are, there are crowd control uh, uh, issues to deal with, you might not uh, be able to see the film, but usually you get a chance to. Um, and if people are interested in, in that, they should um, uh, contact our office, uh, and they can find the, the contact uh, information on our website, which is uh, dceff.org. Um, and uh, then following the festival, uh, you know, our greatest need for volunteers is, is during the festival, but uh, we do have uh, internships um, in the spring and, and the summer and, and fall. So um, I would definitely encourage uh, people to, to get in touch with, with our office if, if they're interested in that. And we'll certainly have a, uh, a link to the festival on uh, your guest profile page and uh, the show page as well. Peter, in our closing moments, you've uh, presided over the film festival as the executive director for a number of years, and the festival is now into its 20th uh, year now. In terms of the impact, and in, in terms of uh, uh, the scale and scope of this 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 film, will will there be people coming from all over the world to come to Washington? We'll be staying here for days to to see all of these films, people from the academic community, the uh, creative community, and so forth. Just give us a sense of, of what it will be like for those who come here during the run of the film festival. Well, uh, one of the things that's, that uh, uh, is really exciting for us about the festival each year is that it, you know, it's very uh, focused on Washington, and, and we're, uh, we're really working in so many different places in Washington, and our audiences um, are, are very much uh, based here in the regional audiences, but we also have a lot of people uh, coming from uh, outside of town um, uh, to come to the festival. We have people coming uh, uh, from other parts of the states and, and even internationally just to go to to 
screenings. Uh, we have people from other countries every year who are interested in starting their own festivals who come uh, and go to as many screenings as they can to see see what ours is like. And we bring uh, a number of filmmakers here, and many, many filmmakers come uh, to the festival every year. Uh, we have a number coming from uh, all over the states, many from California this year, from New York, and, uh, and a large number of international filmmakers as well um, are coming for, for screenings, and, and we'll be speaking after the, the film screen and uh, taking questions from the audience. Uh, so that really, um, you know, enriches the, the experience quite a bit. And I'd just like to mention that I have been invited to moderate uh, the March 15th screening of Cape Spin. And certainly Ian and I will both be there, and we certainly invite uh, you, our listening audience, to, to come by and visit and, and really enjoy this, this film. And I can tell you just from viewing the trailer, I found my inner advocate coming out <laughs> when watching this film, and, uh, and so it's, it's very engaging. Um, Peter O'Brien is the executive director of the D.C. Environmental Film Festival. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. When we return, the inspiring story of Paralympian Anjali Forber-Pratt. But I didn't quite fit in, in in India either because I was raised, you know, Western and raised with very American values. And even though I look Indian, I'm in a very Western and modern wheelchair, you know, something that you wouldn't see in India. And so it was just a, a very, um, you know, a disorienting dilemma. As World Footprints continues... Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprint Radio. Oh, wow. Did you see that? Yeah, but look over here. Oh, beautiful. Unbelievable. Amaze yourself with a getaway to Arizona's red rock country, Sedona. Stay three days and two nights in a studio suite at the Bell Rock Inn for just $178. That's $100 off the retail rate. Call the Arizona Tourism Center at 877-444-8044. Experience the magic of Sedona. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires December 31st, 2012. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with OneBrick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterward. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. Hi, my name is Emmeline. I'm from Korea. I love the Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Becoming a world-class athlete takes enormous determination, courage, and faith. Anjali Forber-Pratt has all of those characteristics and more. She's a record-breaking Paralympic athlete who has competed on the international stage for several years. She's headed to London for the 2012 Games, but is taking time out of her busy training schedule to join us today. Anjali, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here today. I failed to mention that you are a two-time bronze medalist from the 2008 Paralympic Games in Beijing. And uh, this has to be an exciting time to be preparing again for an, another Olympiad. 
It absolutely is. It, it, you know, it, as strange as it sounds, Beijing just seems like yesterday. But mm. I can't believe London's here, and I'm so excited to hopefully have the opportunity to once again represent Team USA. We've had a chance to read your bio, and it really is an inspiring story of、uh, your life starting in India and then coming to the United States. Give people some of the background of、uh, your life journey and how you have found yourself in truly a remarkable position t- today. Sure. Well, I was born in India and、uh, spent two months in an orphanage, and then was adopted by my parents just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. In those days, with international adoption, babies were just put on a plane with a caregiver for the long flight. So I actually quite literally met my parents in the airport.、Um, and really, my my passion for sport and and just kind of who I am today, it all started with a dream.、Uh, to be honest, I thought that my disability, which is transverse myelitis,、um, was just a phase that I was going to outgrow. I got sick two months after arriving in the United States and. I、uh, was left paralyzed from the waist down. So using a wheelchair to to get around is pretty much all all that I've I've ever known. But for me, you know, not knowing any adults with disabilities, I I held this you know childhood assumption that to become an adult, to get a job, to have a family, that I first had to outgrow this phase.、Uh, but like, luckily, my parents understood the power of seeing is believing. And at a young age, I remember watching the Boston Marathon and seeing people in racing wheelchairs go whizzing by at 25 miles per hour, and I was completely blown away. I had never seen anything like it, and I knew right in that moment that was something that I had to try. And you know, that was really the the, the start of my dream、um, to, that that kind of led me down this path to where I am today. I mean, you're you know you're very very blessed、um, you know to have the parents that you you did and you know one of the questions I was going to ask you it, it, it's moot because you came over here so young but I was、mm-hmm. curious about you know the cultural、uh, transition for you you really didn't experience that did you I I didn't experience it then but what I will say being being in entering my adult life and in, as I entered graduate school and I think that there's kind of this natural sort of path that that young adults go through in, in terms of their own identity development and and things like that and for me it was it was entering graduate school when I started really questioning my Indian heritage and I and I made the decision to go back in 2006 to India、um, to Calcutta. Uh, for the first time, and that was really when I started to notice sort of those those cultural differences. And as an adoptee, I was raised with two white parents. My older brother、uh, is Indian and actually currently lives in India, and then my younger brother and sister are, are white. And for me, it was just this interesting experience, though, where you know I didn't qu- feel like I quite fit in here in America, but I didn't quite fit in in, in India either because I was raised, you know, Western and raised with very American values, and even though I look Indian, I'm in a very Western and modern wheelchair. You know, something that you wouldn't see in India, and、mm-hmm. so it was just a, a very,、um, you know, disorienting dilemma, really, for for myself, trying to figure out. Okay, so I don't fit in here, and I don't fit in there. So how can I embrace this this 
piece of India um, as part of who I am and as part of my identity. So it's, it's been a journey for sure. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine the journey continues because you travel around the world as well. And those, you know, you know, Ian and I can attest when you when you travel, when you visit other cultures, when you immerse yourself in other cultures, you do come back a different person. It does change you. And so do you feel like you have that element too that you're grappling with as you know as a global citizen and then trying to find your um, your ethnic identity and your your nationalization uh, identity are you grappling with that too absolutely you know I think every every trip that I go on I mean I, I've been fortunate to have, have traveled to at least a dozen different countries if not more um, and every single trip that I go on I, I do find that, you know, you, you take something back with you from, from those experiences and you transform in some way if, if you allow yourself to. I mean, I, I think about, you know, some of the work that I've done in, in more developing nations such as Ghana and, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about working in those rural areas is that literally every second that you're there, you're changing lives and, and changing the world. And, you know, it's just, it's an incredible experience to be a part of and, and something that I absolutely love. Talk a bit about what the experience was like for you in Ghana, and I understand, too, that you have also gone to one of our favorite places as well, Bermuda, which yes, we know has yes. some challenges for uh, folks who are who are facing uh, disabilities in terms of wheelchairs and accessibilities. Talk about some of those experiences uh, and how they've shaped you. The work that I've done both in Ghana and Bermuda has been surrounding sport, mostly. And, and I found that sport is a way to kind of transcend differences. And sport can serve as a catalyst for social change in some of these nations. Um, for many individuals with disabilities, providing this gift of sport is the first time that individuals with disabilities are taken seriously by their own family or even by their community. Uh, the Paralympic movement, and for listeners who might not know, the Paralympics is the second largest sporting event in the entire world, and it's elite-level competition for athletes with disabilities. And this movement is growing bigger than ever. And just to get Paralympians out there in some of these countries sharing stories alongside Olympians, it sounds a very powerful message, especially in these, these nations. Uh, more specifically, my work in Bermuda was to develop Paralympic sport. And being an island nation, the biggest resource that they were lacking was knowledge. Uh, it was interesting because they have the infrastructure, the talent, the desire, and the financial resources to make it happen. But in many ways, they were just, they were just lacking this, this, what to me was a very simple um, you know, missing piece, which was just knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there was one young woman that I met uh, there, Jessica Lewis, and she and her family um, had to pay for and install an elevator in her school just so she could get to class. But she's learned the power of sport to change people's perception of disability. So she's now an up-and-coming wheelchair racer and got to represent her country for the first time ever at the Parapan American Games uh, in Guadalajara. And she's on her way to London, hopefully, uh, to represent her own country. And so she's really embraced the power of sport to, to further the disability rights movement right there within Bermuda. And I just think that's, it's so incredible to be able to sort of, you know, help to light that fire within her and, and to guide her as, as she, you know, can go forth and, and makes a difference in the world in, in her own way. You know, you, you just said something that really um, struck me, that 
uh, Jessica and her family had to pay for an elevator at school, at her school, so that mm-hmm. she could get to class. That would never happen in the U.S. because we, we do have federal laws. And so I'm wondering, you know, with the work that you're doing and, um, and, and others to raise awareness um, about, you know, you know, we have the ADA laws here. Mm-hmm. Uh, do mm-hmm. you see other countries adopting similar uh, measures, similar regulations to, to make their countries and even basic rights such as education accessible? Part of my strong connection to Jessica is that I actually also had to fight to get an education here in the United States. Mm. Um, I was, I, I, no, my parents didn't have to pay to get an elevator installed because, yes, we did have the, the protections of the Americans with Disabilities but I actually, at age 14, hired my own lawyer and took on my entire school district um, in a federal case against, against my district based on the basis of accessibility. And it was one of it's one of those stories, though, where even in America, we yes, we have these laws, but in certain areas of of, this, of our own country. Uh, you know, it's not being enforced, and, and the fact that, you know, I yes, the ADA was, was, was on the books, but I was being denied access to take English class. I wasn't allowed to participate in physical education class from the fifth grade on. I couldn't get to the chemistry lab. I mean, there's, there's all these different experiences and, and sort of obstacles that, that I faced when trying to get my own education. And, but yes, we kind of had, had this, this sort of um, structure in place and, and sort of ways to, to try to alleviate that and to, and to say, hey, this isn't right. Whereas in some of these developing nations, they don't have, you know, policies on, on, in place yet. And so, but it's interesting when I go to Ghana and when I go to Bermuda, when I share that story with some of those, for them, to, it gives it gives other individuals hope that hey, I'm not the only one who has to fight for this, and you know, and I'm able to, to share my experiences and 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 to hopefully motivate them to see that you know it, it is a, a fight worth fighting. Now, Anjali, you mentioned being inspired by watching the Boston Marathon. How did you first get involved in competitive athletics? Well, so for me, it was, first of all, watching that Boston Marathon and, first of all, realizing that this world of sport even existed for athletes athletes with disabilities. So then I started bugging my parents and found a Saturday sports program for kids with disabilities Mm -hmm. that was about an hour away. And I got to try every sport under the sun. And personally, I fell in love with the sports of speed, so downhill skiing and wheelchair racing uh, were my loves. And, you know, from there, I got the opportunity to, to try competition, and, and you better believe it, I got that competition bug. And um, in 1993, when I was about nine years old, I got to go to my first junior national competition. And that's when I started realizing, you know, there's, there's a bigger sport competition uh, competitive world out there that, hey, maybe I want to be a part of this. And then we fast forward to 2008 in Beijing and the manifestation of that dream as you medaled twice, uh, two bronze medals there. What was it like to be on that podium then representing the United States in an Olympiad? Oh my goodness. I know my answer sounds cliche, but it truly has been a dream come true. You know, from the time that I was that, that young kid, five, six years old, drawing pictures and fantasizing what it would be like to wear those letters across my chest and to represent our country, and it took a lot of hard work and determination, for sure, to get there. 
But in 2008, you know, when I rolled into that stadium at the Bird's Nest and there was 91,000 screaming fans in the audience, mm. it was just breathtaking. I mean, even rehashing the story, I mean, just it, it's just an incredible, incredible experience. Now, you've talked a little bit about, you know, skiing as well, and so I'm curious, have you uh, have you competed in both the winter and summer uh, Olympics, and were you in Vancouver by any chance? Um, I have not competed in the winter Paralympics. I, I kind of competed mostly at the national level when I was when I was a competitive ski racer, but currently living in the flatlands of Illinois, it's a little bit difficult to find a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why well, one would think. But you were recently in uh, Breckenridge. What were you doing there? Um, in Breckenridge, Colorado, I was there for the Hartford Ski Spectacular, which is an incredible week-long event. Uh, that's put on through Disabled Sports USA, an organization that, that I'm proud to be a part of. And of the whole week, it's about getting individuals out there skiing either for their very first time, honing their racing skills, um, and for instructors and, and um, volunteers to learn about all the different adaptive equipment. I had the opportunity to mentor a young kid who uh, just recently over the summer was injured in the um, in a stage collapse, actually, at the Sugarland concert, Brad Humphreys. He uh, was left paralyzed and was out there for his very first time getting exposed to some winter sports. We talk, you know, we talked a little bit about your, your travels, and we touched on Ghana and Bermuda. Where are some of the other mm-hmm. countries that uh, you visited, and how have those places been for you? And actually, I want to circle back to, to China, um, because I live mm-hmm. there, and so I'm curious uh-huh. about your perception of, uh, of Beijing and whether you went outside of Beijing to visit other areas. I've traveled to, to several different areas, um, and specific to China, it actually reminds me of one of the most successful experiences that, that I've had traveling with a disability was actually in Beijing. Um, after the games had ended, a few of my friends, uh, we wanted to go downtown to see a little bit more of Beijing. And so we hailed a taxi, and at first we were very resistant and said, no, 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 only one person in a wheelchair can get in, and there was a group of about five of us. But we knew how to pack the cab and to make it work. I mean, we were used to doing that in our everyday lives. But the neat thing was that this man was, was willing to learn. And so once we showed him how we were going to disassemble our wheelchairs and how we were going to pack it kind of like a game of Tetris, something truly really magical happened. He got on the radio and told all of the cab drivers that it wasn't a problem at all. And uh, and he somehow rather rehashed how, you know, how to disassemble the chairs. And so when it was time for us to return to, to go back to the athlete village, um, and when other friends wanted to hail a cab to go on an adventure or whatever, it was a non-issue from that point forward. So it was kind of just a really cool experience of, about a the power of, of listening and being willing to learn. That's fantastic, I mean, particularly in, in, you know, in, in Beijing, um, just mm-hmm. you know, the receptiveness of the, uh, the drivers. That's a fantastic experience and probably very transformative for them as well. We've talked a lot about travels on this show, accessible travels. What are some of the other issues you've experienced traveling as an accessible traveler? And what are some of the things you want to see changed? Yeah, you know, I think Unfortunately, it is those negative experiences that we're, we're kind of all more apt to remember. I mean, I remember instances of having my boarding pass taken away when I was trying to board a plane for India because 
the ticket agent made the assumption that I was medically unstable to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was another experience, actually, unfortunately, recently when I was vacationing in Hawaii, and I was denied access to board a boat to go on a dinner cruise with friends because they said, because you were handicapped. Um, and and the whole ex- those experiences are certainly disheartening and frustrating. Um, and when you when you go to developing nations, you know people don't expect to see a tourist or a person in, the, in a wheelchair just out and about in their society. And it just just by going to these places, it turns heads. And so I think really the biggest barrier that I face is just that underlying assumption that I can't do it and that I shouldn't be there. People are afraid of differences instead of, like the, the taxi driver in, in China, instead of embracing the moment, asking questions, and, and being open to learn. Um, I, that's what I think is the biggest barrier that I face. Now, Anjali, we're on the uh, verge of these 2012 games in London, and it's been four years since Beijing. How have you maintained your training regimen, your drive? in between the two Olympiads, and give us a sense of what your training is like as you head into the 2012 Games in London. For me, my biggest motivation comes from my own motto, which is dream, drive, do. And, you know, I, I think back to, to just my childhood dream and, and trying to make that a reality. And, and yes, they're, they're, the drive comes from the, the obstacles that are going to come up and along the way. But then it's just a matter of getting out there and, and doing it. So for me, that entails training six days a week, um, anywhere from an hour to two hours uh, session, and balancing that with the you know the other um, obligations that I have of finishing up uh, school and, and work and, and all of that. But for me, that that's really what what it comes down to is just remembering you know dream drive do. We're we're all able to to make your dreams a reality if if, if you really dedicate a lot of hard work to to making it happen. Now, one of those obligations is you're in a Ph.D. program at the University of Illinois. Talk to us about that and how you're balancing all of this. Yes, I'm actually getting quite close to finishing a Ph.D. in the Department of Education, Policy, Organization, and Leadership. Um, and I'm actually scheduled to finish up in March, so um, it, it, the end is in sight with that, and I'm quite excited. Uh, personally, my, with that, my research interest centers around individuals who are not given a chance, those who are left on the sidelines in life for whatever the reason. And yes, it, it certainly does take up uh, quite a bit of my time, but I, I found there's a unique intersection between my role as an athlete and as an, as an ambassador for the sport movement and my research interests. And, and I've been fortunate to have an incredible set of advisors and mentors who have really pushed me to kind of bring all of those interests together, um, which is how I am able to balance it all. What is next for, for you? I mean, you're going to graduate or defend your Ph.D. this March. You have the Olympics. Uh, are we looking at 2016 Olympics? I mean, how long do you uh, anticipate competing? And, and what's your plans, your life plans, after you uh, receive your, your degree? Uh, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, as you mentioned, in the immediate future, you know, graduation and hopefully earning a spot on Team USA for 2012 is those are kind of re- immediately next on the horizon. And beyond that, I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, what I do know is that I'm passionate about helping others um, who are left on the sidelines for whatever reason, not just in the context of sports, but also in life or in education. 
Uh, I see myself continuing to spread my story and message to help others. And I, I don't know, I mean, whether I continue on through Rio, um, it has yet to be determined. I told myself I will reevaluate after London and, and you know, to, to some degree, just kind of go and win takes me. And, of course, we will have links to uh, every place uh, people can find you on your guest profile page on our website and also this show. And I tell you, if uh, anyone sees your photograph on your guest profile page, you are so buff. Michelle Obama and her beautiful <laughs> arms don't light a candle to you. So we expect to see you on the, on the track. Thank you very much, and I hope that everyone will continue to follow me on my journey. And it's just Anjali, A-N-J-A-L-I-F-P. And that's how you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and my own website. Thank you very much. After the break, we'll take summers off with author Larry Shortell. In Fiji, I was uh, sleeping in a little bungalow, and uh, I got bit by something. <laughs> uh. And I didn't know what it was, and I, I couldn't see what it was because there's no electricity. And uh, so I stayed up all night long wondering what bit me. Am I going to die? Next is World Footprints Continues. Hi, I'm Johannes from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. Oh, wow. Did you see that? Yeah, but look over here. Oh, beautiful. Unbelievable. Amaze yourself with a getaway to Arizona's Red Rock Country, Sedona. Stay three days and two nights in a studio suite at the Bell Rock Inn for just $178. That's $100 off the retail rate. Call the Arizona Tourism Center at 877-444-8044. Experience the magic of Sedona. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires December 31st, 2012. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Hi, my name is Catherine from France, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Some teachers teach without ever leaving the classroom. Larry Jungle Chartel is not one of them. During the school year, Larry teaches special education in Connecticut. But during his summers off, which incidentally is the name of his new book, Larry travels the world seeking adventure and educational opportunities. Larry, where does the uh, the jungle name come from? <laughs> uh, how you doing? Uh, jungle started when I was working in a daycare, actually uh, putting myself through college. And when I started working there, all the uh, students, all the kids, uh, instead of playing on the jungle gym, uh, started playing on me and hanging out <laughs> with me and climbing all over me. So, you know, the other staff members noticed that and started calling me Jungle Larry. And uh, then the parents took over and then the students, and it just kind of stuck from there. <laughs> oh, my. So uh, if you happen to come down our way... Um <laughs> <laughs> We'll we'll, um, we'll we'll keep that in mind. Okay. Now, your your personal journey is uh, is very very inspiring. Having grown up in Connecticut, tell us about your your younger years and how you came to travel. 
Uh, well, in my younger years, I had no interest in travel. We were in a small little state, and I didn't really know anybody that traveled. And uh, I really never left Connecticut. Um, but uh, when I you know, turned 18, I joined the Navy, and I started doing a little bit of traveling. But uh, mostly just, you know, working and um, not really doing much of anything. And, and uh, when I started getting into scuba diving, um, I, started, I took scuba diving here in Connecticut, and it was six months before I moved down to Florida so I could start really doing some scuba diving, you know, because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty cold up here and there's not much going on in that sense. So all the magazines I would look at, you know, steered me towards more of the tropics. So went down to Florida and uh, started, you know, traveling with diving, started uh, teaching diving after a couple years of, of training for it, and uh, it's been open ever since then. Larry, when did the travel bug hit you? Uh, I guess, you know, it's, um, it was right around the time that I moved to Florida. Um, you know, from there, there's, uh, you know, like I said, there's, there's diving there, but then it was like, you know, now I'm going off to the Caribbean and some Central American countries to dive. So it was right around, uh, you know, ni- uh, right around 1990 when I, when I moved down there. But when I started teaching, then that gave me the ability to, I mean, I started teaching diving so I could go to even more places. But then when I started uh, teaching um, as a school teacher in 98, that's when I had the two months a year to just go and do it. So it started with the very first summer. I had uh, only worked a couple months, and the end of the school year was there, and then I was off for the whole summer. Tell us about your first trip. I understand it was a pretty unique adventure. It was. Uh, my first trip, I just... I had so many places that I wanted to go and I had been reading out about for years, but, you know, as a poor college student, I couldn't go anywhere. So uh, I had all these places in mind, and so I kind of arranged to um, hop onto a cargo boat and start traveling throughout the Caribbean, everywhere through the Caribbean. So I would each day get up in a new location, and they would drop off their supplies as I'd go out scuba diving or go out, you know, climbing the mountains or whatever there was, uh, you know, there to see or do. So I just uh, attached to this cargo boat for a month and traveled throughout the Caribbean and hitting probably 30, 30 different islands. And uh, then when that was over, I attached myself to a mail boat, even smaller, and uh, traveled throughout the Bahamas. <laughs> so, yep, that was pretty unique. I was able to catch up on a lot, you know, get, get a jump start. Cargo cruising is, uh, is a very niche uh, way to travel over water. What was that like for you? It, it was amazing. I mean, it was just absolutely great. It wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of tourists on board. It wasn't like, uh, you know, everybody's, um, you know, having nice dinners and deciding what to do the next day and everything. It was just kind of like I felt like part of the crew. Um, I would just um, watch, you know, like I said, they, they would travel at night, and uh, then the next day they would just be sitting there unloading their, their uh, ship all day long onto that island or onto other boats as well. Um, and I'd just kind of go off and do my own thing, you know. So it was, it was really unique. I loved it, though. So <laughs> how, how did you go about booking that crew, uh, uh, cruise, cargo cruise? Because I, I know that there are members of our listening audience who are a bit intrigued about this process, just, you yeah. know, joining a, a cargo ship and whether or not you had to work as part of your, you know, your, your sailing. Yeah. Uh, it was not easy, that's for sure, and I really didn't know what I was looking for. I just thought to myself, if I want to do this, that means somebody else some along, somewhere along the line has had to have wanted to as well. So it took a long time, and, and most people, um, you know, weren't creative enough to know, hear anything about that. You know, they, people want to go to Disney World, if people want to go here or there, just a regular, you know, cruise that, that's already set up. This was a very unique one. So it took a lot of phone calls and just happened to catch somebody eventually who uh, knew of, you know, 
somebody who had traveled this way before and mm -hmm. put me in touch with that person and put me in touch with the company that does that. And uh, so, yeah, it, it wasn't easy. It's not, I guess it's not, you know, something that the, a whole lot of people do, but it is possible. Well, and it seems like from there, you know, you've gone on. Your travels have been extensive. How have you managed to explore the world on a teacher's salary? <laughs> that's, that's probably the most popular question I'm asked lately. <laughs> um, well, you know, I tell you, the thing is, uh, you know, people prioritize with different things, you know, and they have a nice car or they have a nice house or something like that. I've always just stayed well below my means um, and just cut back on small little things like making my own coffee and bringing my own lunch. You know, I've always been in that habit. And I just budget for it the entire year, and I don't really splurge on a whole lot of other things. I just, you know, plan travel and think about travel and, you know, watch travel documentaries and things like that. Uh, so, you know, not, not going out to dinners and things like that. Just kind of just kind of budget for it and save for the whole year. Do kind of like my activities are just simple ones like kayaking and, and hiking, things that don't really cost a lot, you know, mm -hmm. on, a, on a weekly basis or all. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then when I am traveling, you know, like I said, this cargo boat was a very cheap way <laughs> to, uh, to travel around. As you can imagine, it wouldn't be like paying for a cruise, you know, that's... Uh, you know, a thousand bucks or two thousand for a week. You know, this was more. You know, this was a lot more modest. So, you know, when I I stay at hostels and things like that. You know, as I get older, I stay at nicer places. But still, uh, you know, you can really stay for cheap if you if you look around and do your own planning and right. uh, stay for extended time periods. That helps a lot too. You know, you stay a week for you know you stay somewhere for five weeks or six weeks instead of one week. You tend to get a better deal. <laughs> and. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the travel I can eat in Asia, of course, is very, very cheap. And so, With all of these travels and experiences, you have a unique opportunity as an educator to share these experiences. How have you incorporated your travels into your teaching? First of all, the, the patience part really comes into play. Uh, my patience has definitely, I've definitely become a more patient teacher because when you travel, you have to have that uh, that uh, patience, or else you 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 learn it along the way, <laughs> because you spend so many t so much time waiting for airports, or you know, waiting for boats, or waiting for different things, and things just aren't the same. So um, I definitely developed a lot of patience. Um, also, you know, when I do go to these uh, foreign countries, I tend to uh, always seek out schools. So I go and I'll spend you know a day at the school learning about you know watching them and see how they learn and everything and. Sometimes I have spent a month teaching kids abroad, you know, just mm -hmm. <laughs> going to the school and really enjoying it, or, or they don't have a teacher at the time, and so I'll take over. Uh, those have been some of my best experiences ever. But with that, I learn about the different learning styles, you know, in different countries, different cultures. So it helps me uh, understand, you know, the students in my classroom. I mean, you know, in, in America, we have more and more diverse population all the time. Your new book, Summers Off, The Worldwide Adventures of a School Teacher, is filled with great stories and is really a travel guide. Share some of what the book's about. It's more of, you know, for entertaining. It's more for entertainment purposes. It's not a guide as far as if you wanted to go here, this is what you would do. Um, it's, you know, there's plenty of books out there like that. This is just about, uh, you know, my, some of my favorite adventures and, uh, you know, a lot of things that went wrong because a lot of these stories are from when I was a brand new traveler. So you make a lot of mistakes. Right. <laughs> so people can learn secondhand. They can learn from those mistakes. Um, but just, you know, all, all the animals that I've experienced, all the uh, adventures that I've done, um, the, uh, 
uh, you know, ride, riding, you know, yaks and riding camels and elephants and uh, skydiving and bungee jumping and um, uh, zip lines, riding zip lines through different places. Um, and, you know, things that I, trouble that I've gotten into and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, things that I've gotten bitten by and, uh... <laughs> oh, my. So, yeah. so you carry the jungle name with you on the yeah. road in some ways, it sounds like. And But your your book is kind of an ABC. It's how I would describe it because you, you list all, you know, the countries, the experiences you ha- you have. Each chapter represents a letter of the alphabet. Um, right. And so you... Uh, you're, you know, you took your um, your classroom with you on the road. It seems exactly. like. Yeah, it's uh, twenty. It's uh, more than twenty six different locations. Uh, that's kind of something unique about my book. Is uh, you know, instead of just picking one place and writing uh, a two hundred page book about it, um, this uh, yeah, this has um, you know adventures from around the world. Uh, there's like I said, there's over twenty six different you know states or countries that it represents out of the eighty countries that I've been to. And, uh, you know, each one is unique. Each one, you know, uh, is just entertaining. But, uh, again, you can kind of learn secondhand from what I've done or just my, you know, from the place itself, learn about the place itself. And then just kind of uh, the life experiences and life lessons I've learned from travel. Mm -hmm. So it all comes out. (laughs) What is the most entertaining story, you you think, in the book or the most comical story that or the... uh the, the biggest uh, mistake that you made. What, tell us some of the stories that you have in the book. I made a lot of mistakes, but um, <laughs> one of them, you know, I know you're into scuba diving as well. One of them was uh, the very first chapter. One of my very first trips that I took, uh, you know, we in America have a lot of safety regulations, and in some of these other countries, it's just not as important <laughs> for safety. So I was down uh, in a shipwreck, which I wasn't certified being a shipwreck, and I was down at night, which I wasn't certified to be at night, and I was down deep, which I wasn't certified to. So all three of these, and uh, I, I was swimming around in this shipwreck, and I was with other people, but uh, then I got preoccupied with a cute little fish and uh, found myself alone. <laughs> oh. I mean, and of course, you can't get out of a shipwreck unless you know which way to go. So that was a little bit scary. <laughs> that that and, was uh, in Aruba? Is it- that was in Aruba, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and um, let me see, in and, and, and Fiji, I was uh, sleeping in a little bungalow, and uh, I got bit by something. <laughs> oh. And I didn't know what it was, and I, I couldn't see what it was because there's no electricity. And uh, so I stayed up all night long wondering what bit me, am I going to die, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it wasn't a mistake I made, uh, but except, I guess, checking the bed before I got in it. Uh, <laughs> but it was a pretty, pretty interesting uh, uh, story as, as well. <laughs> so do you, is it your hope that uh, people reading your book, I mean, what do you want them to take away? Are there mistakes that they can learn through you vicariously? Uh, through you know reading about your mistakes or what what would you like people to know about uh, the book and about the book yeah absolutely I mean I think that uh, you know secondarily they will learn mistakes like what not to do if they're traveling um, and uh, you know secondarily they will learn about um, you know about these different places and how great they are and why they should visit them and all this or if they didn't want to visit them at least hear about it but the primary thing is is simply to entertain and Hopefully with that, I mean, you know, I just have been exposed to this, and this was the advice given to me by veteran teachers when I first got into teaching, was that I should take advantage of the um, of this uh, profession, profession.
profession and take my summers off and get out there and be able to see things firsthand. And even if you can't go to Australia or China, at least go somewhere, you know, in your own state or in your own country and uh, really enjoy travel and get to see things that you're not used to and, and get out of your comfort zone and, uh, you know, live it up. <laughs> That's what the primary would be. Has there been a trip that's had a tremendous impact on you in terms of uh, life transformation? I think so. Uh, I think uh, my trip to Laos, uh, I went there, of course, to see, you know, what there is to see in that country. And uh, I ended up teaching in a little building. I wouldn't really call it a school, but it was meant to, to house uh, students if there happened to be some foreigner there who decided that they, you know, would like to help out or whatever. And I went there to do that for a few days and get that experience of, of uh, teaching students. And I ended up staying for uh, more than a month. And it was the greatest experience ever. I just would, uh, you know, walk through the village. And uh, that, that's how just if when, when people saw some stranger walk through their village and head up towards the hill, um, they knew that they were here to, to teach them teach them some English, and so the kids would just come flying out of their houses and, you know, be yelling and screaming and grabbing onto my arm, and everybody else would hear, and by the time I got up to the hill, I'd have 20 or 30 kids around me, and would go to the, go to the little building and would, would uh, learn English for the next few hours. What else have you learned about yourself through traveling? I've learned that um, it, the, my traveling is a little bit different, and that kind of goes with myself. Myself, I was always a really hyper, you know, get as much done and do as much as I can, as fast as I can. And I think the traveling, although when I started it was like, you know, yeah, I want to go here, here, here. But the, the, the more time I've spent at a place, the more I've realized that I enjoy it just as much, if not more, by having the time to spend there. And I think that's the same with my life. Instead of just flying through and doing as many things as I can, a lot of times I'll just stop and just, do nothing except that one thing for the day, and then I really realized that that's the way to do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So really just taking time and um, really enjoying every little part of it. And uh, Larry, in the few seconds we have left, I understand that you have three rules for travelers. What are those? Everybody should carry a book, first thing, because you uh, will spend time waiting, <laughs> And you, you have to have that patience and flexibility. And, you know, you have to realize that things aren't done the same way that they're done where you're used to. And you just have to accept that, whether you think it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as far as directions, <laughs> always ask open-ended questions. Always uh, don't just take the first person or the second person or third person's advice on something. Just keep on asking and keep on finding out because you'll get a lot of different answers. Right, right. And <laughs> Most of the answer will be yes, yes, to everything you ask, yes, so. Well, in in uh, in in closing, I, I wanted to share with our audience. We will have a link to uh, your book, Summers Off. On okay. it's actually on your guest profile page right now, but it will also be on this radio show page. And uh, certainly, uh, the book that uh, we recommend travelers take is your book, Summers Off, because it is a great read and it's very entertaining and will help the waits in the airports go by a heck of a lot quicker. <laughs> so, Larry Chartel. Thank you so much for, for joining us today and sharing your stories. We truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you want more World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, produced three times 
a week, which concludes the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates about travel news, contests, and prize giveaways. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.